You're listening to Flipping the Barrel Podcast, a women's perspective in oil and gas. We are your hosts, Macy and Jamie. And our mission here is simple, to bring you the untold stories of this industry. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Flipping the Barrel, a podcast where we interview leaders in the energy space to uncover and find out more about their career and life journeys. Today, we have Richard Lynch. He is the Senior Vice President of Technology and Services at Hess Corporation. He is a member of the Hess Executive Team and has 42 plus years of professional experience. He sits on the board and is the chairman of Kenya Schools of Hope, a nonprofit where he rescues girls in Kenya. He is very passionate about his charitable work, and we are very appreciative of the work that he puts in here. He has been a part of some of the most monumental operations in oil and gas history, and we look forward to hearing more about him today. Hello, Richard. Hi, guys. Great to be with you this morning. Uh, Jamie and Marcel, it's fantastic to be part of this. Uh, my first podcast, so I don't quite know what to expect, but I'll make the best of it. So let's go. Let's go. That's exciting, Richard. Thank you so much for accepting our invite. And we, like Jamie mentioned, we look forward to hearing more from you and learning from 42 plus years of experience. So, wow. Tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up. We know that you grew up in Power, Wyoming. So tell us a little bit about what that childhood looked like and bring us back there for some of us that don't know what Wyoming looks like or feels like. What's interesting about your story is that you grew up in the industry. Both your father and your grandfather were in this business. And so you were really born into it. Tell us how that was like and why you decided to follow their footsteps when a lot of children, sometimes they want to do the complete opposite of what their parents and grandparents did. So, Okay, great. Well, that's a great open question. I'll play into that. So yes, I was born and raised in Powell, Wyoming. Uh, Powell's a little town in the northwest corner of Wyoming, very near Yellowstone Park, just north of Cody, Wyoming. A lot of people would know of Cody. It's in the Bighorn Basin, surrounded in a big mountain basin, beautiful location, big mountain valley, uh, big fertile grounds, a lot of farming and ranching there, a lot of oil and gas there for both reasons, being in the middle of that big basin. But it's interesting, your question, you know, my grandfather actually was a derrick builder is what he did when he first got out of high school, built wooden derricks and worked all over many places in the world. And then he ended up being a master machinist. And then as my dad came along, there again, he uh, was very involved. He worked on the rigs. I mean, he drilled and uh, pushed tools and things of that nature on drilling rigs and kind of grew up around that. And then later on, he got into consulting and production work. It's always fun to me. I always tell the story about my granddad giving my dad a hard time about, you know, being in the business when the derricks were made of wood and the men were made of steel. You know, and my dad always kind of had a half snicker about that and uh, never knew quite how to react to it. But as you ask that question, I think what I need to really express is the reason I'm in this business is really because of my mom and dad and the, kind of the love and the closeness of our family. But the process of this oil and gas career that my dad had, we moved a lot. I moved from Wyoming to Nebraska to North Dakota. We moved from North Dakota to Singapore. We moved back to Wyoming. I moved and graduated from high school in Cairo, Egypt. And if I'm really honest about it, I'm a culturally diverse person. I'm actually multicultural. I grew up in that world. I love that space and world. And I knew this industry would give me the opportunity to do more of that. And that's really the main reason I pursued it. I was either going to pursue medicine or I was going to pursue oil and gas. And I ultimately decided to. Uh, go into engineering so I could do either one, but I ultimately decided to stay with oil and gas. And that's kind of the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it's one of those things that you can't map out a career or a life 
but I really knew I wanted to get back overseas. And I did kind of lay groundwork for that. I wanted to make sure I could work for companies where that was a possibility. And I did do some of that, but life comes as it comes and you just have to live it. So Today's episode is brought to you by Veril Energy Solutions. Did you know that Veril has been around since 1947? They're originally known for their drill bits, but through several acquisitions, investments, and rebranding, they now offer a diversified portfolio in drilling and completions. One of their core competencies is actually global manufacturing of consumable downhole products. They solve the industry supply chain problems. We've chosen to partner with Veril because they simply get it. They focus on their employees, they're committed to diversity and inclusion, and they know their only true sustainable advantage is their people. To learn more and stay up to date, please go to www.veril.com. Veril Energy Solutions, beyond technology, beyond normal. Well, we're really glad that you did choose this industry as you've been here for 42 years. You know, you mentioned looking back on some of your summer jobs, you worked offshore logistics at an offshore logistics base. You did field construction. You did roughnecking on land rigs. I mean, you did a lot of stuff during your summer engineering internships. How did those impact you to become the leader you are today? And looking back on those times, how important it is for the younger generation even today to have those kind of experiences? Yeah, well, there's nothing like field operations to really appreciate the job from the sharp end, if you will. The great thing about that those people are great people, right? I was one of those people. I mean, it's great to work in the field and get the, the excitement and the hard work and the efforts it takes to actually to drill an oil and gas well, whether it's supporting logistics or building construction sites for it or actually working on the rig. And I learned a lot from that. I understood that. But it dovetailed very well with my engineering degree that I was getting in the same time. I could see where how both fit together. But I think the biggest benefit from it was being able to communicate to many different types of people being able to collaborate and actually form the teams that make these efforts in oil and gas possible. Yes, thank you for sharing. The field folks are really what keep our lights on and they're the ones out there putting in the work we're supporting from the offices. So it's really great that as a leader, you had that start there and you know what the difficult conditions can be like and the importance of never forgetting those in the field that are you know working 24 seven, rain or shine. So thank you for sharing that. You did a recent keynote at the University of Wyoming where you described how your career was split into three major growth and leadership periods, which we really liked how you broke it down because I think we could each break our own careers in the way you did and see what resonates with us. So we'd like for you to share a little bit on them. I will kind of put them out for the listeners. So you mentioned the first 10 years was building technical and operational knowledge, skills, and ability. Then the next 20 years, you were building technical leadership, business acumen, cultural sensitivity, stakeholder relationship, and political awareness. And in the last 10 plus years, you focused on setting and leading strategic direction, building organizational strength, leveraging technology and relationships, and delivering business results. It's fantastically put. It really breaks us down to how you looked at your career. Can you expand a little bit on those three? Sure, you bet. You know, that first 10 years is fundamental for everybody. And it's about building depth, actually, not breadth, but building depth. I mean, you've got to get grounded in the things that you love and your passions drive you towards, right? And I knew that I loved drilling and completion operations. Maybe it was because I was working on the rigs. I don't know. But that was something that I was really fascinated by. But what I knew about that was I needed to understand, understand it more, right? 
And look, I had the opportunity in those 10 years to work on rigs from land to the deep water, not every type of rig. One of the pieces of advice that my dad gave me, you know, it still stands true today. I still honor it, is to see as many geologic basins as I possibly can. He says, that will make you a much stronger drilling and completion person because it's, he says, it's, at the end of the day, petroleum is a product of the rocks and the geology that where you extracted from. And then that's the way you learn to be the best at that particular end of the career and in your career. And so I've kind of kept that very true. And I love drilling and completing wells. But that was true in that first 10 years. I was really driving to that depth. The other unique thing about 10 years, and I'll just say it, 10 years was kind of that magic jumping off where I could actually get work permits internationally. Mm-hmm. So I had to build that technical depth because I knew I wanted to get back into the international environment. That was part of the plan as well, that I wanted to be able to do that. I had that aspiration to pursue that. I was dreaming about that. And that enabled me to do it, but I had to build a depth to get there. Thank you for sharing that, Richard. What we wanted to kind of deep dive in on that question is you mentioned something that your dad told you as advice. And he also talked about flexibility and making your home wherever you hang your hat and embrace culture experiences, which is something you definitely did. As you just mentioned, you know, you moved to different cities and countries with a young family. Can you tell us how you made that work, especially with children? in the mix. And we know that your wife wasn't able to work in some of the areas where you moved to, including Malaysia. And there's a lot of people that experience that throughout their career, especially in oil and gas when they want to go international. You know, they wonder, how am I going to bring my family with me? What's that dynamics going to look like? And so how did you actually use your dad's advice and being flexible with the culture changes and moving your family? Yeah. So, I mean, on the family front, that's a very good question. And I would say international travel and multicultural environments isn't for everybody. I mean, it suited myself and Marilyn, my wife, very well. But, you know, there's always a few principles you need to hold when you do things like that. And first and foremost, we're going to keep a strong family unit. That's how we were raised. We love that. We embrace that. We're going to do that. So one of our conditions was we would do international work, but we always wanted to have our children with us. We were looking for sites and opportunities where our kids could go to school in that setting, We preferred to have an American-based school, but we were open to other schooling if that was a requirement. But our really key need was make sure our kids were with us. We wanted to make sure we had the benefit of raising our children, you know, because it's a parental thing and that's what we love to do and we love our kids. And so that was one of the parameters that we had as we thought about that. As far as Marilyn and I, you have these career choices that come up. And when I got that first international assignment, actually it was to Indonesia, we knew Marilyn couldn't work there. And we kind of made a decision at that point. It was a hard decision. We want to do that. Marilyn, do you want to give up your career? And would you consider what are you going to think about staying home and raising our daughter, Lauren, at the time? And she goes, man, I'd love that. You know, that's a blessing, actually. You know, what are you talking about? No, I, yeah, absolutely. I want to do that. And that served us well. And it kind of worked that way ever since. Marilyn was always very involved in the expat community that we lived in and the the local community around us. Give her the opportunity to be very involved in school, extracurricular activities, you know, the Halloween parties or whatever, you know, all those things that make life so exciting. She did a lot of coaching uh, as well. She's pretty athletic and, you know, whether it was tennis or soccer and things like that. It created an opportunity, I think, for us family-wise that we had underappreciated. But, you know, when I look back, as I said, what a blessing, what a great thing to have in, in your life, you know, and it was uh, worked well for us. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. I also think it's just the mindset that you had as a family with your wife of this is a great opportunity. We're going to be excited about it, get involved with the communities. 
Because at the end of the day, it's really what you make it. And one thing that's important, I believe you mentioned this when we spoke to you the first time is when you go to a new country or a new location, don't expect it to be like Wyoming. Don't expect it to be like the US. Really embrace those changes. And that's really how maybe you become successful is not comparing and saying, well, they don't do it our way. And so, yeah, that's really important. You raise a really interesting point. And I'm sorry to jump in, Massey, but one thing I learned and we talk about this as we go back and forth to Kenya now, cultural differences, different cultures aren't right or wrong. They're different. And there's something to learn from that difference. That difference actually is very powerful when you're trying to make better decisions or you're trying to form a team or you're trying to understand things that don't make sense. It's unbelievable the cultural bias that I have or the cultural blinders I have on if you just allow that other culture to come in, you see the world differently and you end up with different and better solutions to problems that you're trying to work. And, you know, it's one of those things. It's one of those things that if, I guess I've experienced over my career. And I think other people say the same things. I mean, I don't think I'm unusual in that, but it's very true. Power of diversity is brilliant. Yes. Thank you for sharing that. The power of diversity and just how I really like what you mentioned about it's not right or wrong, because sometimes that comes into why do they do this way? Why do they work these hours? Why do they you know, instead, like you mentioned, just using that diversity to how you can make your teams better or even change some of what you are doing differently because other teams do it better once you see what other countries are doing, other areas. So yeah, thank you for that. In that topic, you've managed teams of all sizes and in different parts of the world. Just to that point, cultures are so different. Everybody likes different things, how to speak to them. Some people like when it's affirmative. Some people like when it's more flexible. We were talking with a leader where maybe in some countries it's okay to touch the shoulder and others it's not. What has made you successful in leading teams with different backgrounds? And what do you think is something that's been the most successful with your teams? Maybe is there like an important quality in leadership that you think has worked really well internationally? Gosh, that's a big question. I'll try my best to answer it. I think a couple of things. One for me is listening is very important and actually interacting with people. You know, listening is a two-way communication. It's just not listening, but it's being curious and inquiring about what's going on and what's happening. A lot of times, what it's really hard to hear is a silent voice, but oftentimes when people are quiet or the interaction doesn't seem right or something funny or awkward is kind of going on, Sometimes you just need to shut it down and find out what what is going on, right? Or why aren't you bringing a voice forward? Or how do I make sure that you can bring your voice forward? Because in some cultures, they won't speak up or they won't speak up, especially if it would be in conflict with an opinion that I would have or even a bigger boss would have, you know, they wouldn't speak up or a supervisor or another leader because that wasn't the way they worked in their culture, right? And there would be different whispers going around the back and different ways of communicating things. But, you know, usually if you can get a person then one-on-one and say, just tell me what's going on, right? Let's just talk about that conversation we're having. I know you have some ideas and whatnot. You have to seek out these different ways of getting that communications to flow. And, you know, it's funny, even today, you know, it's it's like use of the little apps and devices, right, where you get feedback. Well, sometimes that's really helpful because otherwise those voices will never be heard or understood. You do have to seek out the most important things in life is actually communication. And if you don't have a flow of communication, it's really hard to either run business or have a relationship or make things work, right? Yeah, we fully relate to that. Communication is key in business and life, uh, no matter where you are in the world. So thank you for sharing. 
on that topic of diversity and especially inclusion, because that's really what happens when you have that communication. Yeah. Let's talk about female talent. And that's something as a leader like yourself on the executive team, you impact from the top down and even in your own groups, you know, how you can impact the female talent, not just of HESS, but also just the energy space. What strategies have you seen work to ensure the representation of women is there and that we are able to put them in positions and roles of higher management yeah. and grow their careers? Yeah, really important question. First off, one thing I would say in our industry, and especially in the STEM skills, we still do not have enough women represented. So I'll just say that it's behind where we should be. But having said that, in the industry and in my job, I need to lead the whole front of that, right? And it starts at the very beginning. You know, how can I help a young lady from university get a job? How do you write a resume? How do you have the presence of mind? How do you have the confidence to go forward into an interview? What are you thinking about? What am I thinking about as a hiring person? Have that conversation. It's very helpful, right? And I you know, I get to help many folks coming out of the university to help them get jobs and roles. I love doing that. And then after that, it's about coaching and mentoring, right? I've worked for some very, very successful women, some of the best leaders I've ever worked with. And some of the best teammates I've ever had are women. Why? Because they did bring a different view to the table. They've got a different sense about things. Their intuition, their emotional intelligence is just different than many of the other male counterparts sitting around the table. And when you realize that, you realize how powerful that is to have them as part of the team or the leader of the team or those type of things. So not only is my role now about helping and coaching and mentoring, but look, I do a lot of collaborating with other ladies in my business, but also I have a role as a sponsor or a representative. And in my role and job, I actually get an opportunity to have an opinion at the senior table of understanding, hey, this person has some very unique skills. We need to make a place to pull them forward into a role that actually gives them a greater opportunity in the business that we're running. And we do that very mindfully. And I'm not talking exclusively about women here, but it's a huge element of how you actually get the stratification and the diversity and the knowledge that's required to run a business today. It's a physical act, right? I mean, it's a purposeful thing. It's a strategy, yes, but more importantly, it's action. Action actually makes a difference. I don't know if that answered your question, but those are the kind of things that are in my mind, kind of things that we're doing it's great to bring that into the team, right? And it just makes a difference. And now a little word from our sponsor, Technique FMC. Macy, you know what I appreciate about them as a sponsor is their mission is directed towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce. One of the reasons why we started this podcast was to move the industry forward, and they back that belief. Their focus is creating a culture of inclusion that will attract, develop, and retain a more diverse, talented group and ensure their employees can always bring their authentic selves to work. Beyond the DNI, they're also big into technologies. They believe in change and innovation in everything they do. Their offerings range from individual products and services to fully integrated solutions with a single interface to ensure a seamless execution. Their core focus is on the energy transition, emerging materials, and digital industrialization. To find out more about their most popular technologies like iProduction, iComplete, eMission, and iEPCI, go to technipfmc.com. And now back to the show.
Yes, Richard. Like to your point, we need men to be part of the change because men right now represent the majority of the stakeholders that can make the decisions to impact the future. And so thank you because you've been a big advocate for that, especially coming from the top, like you mentioned. And at the end of the day, people like yourself are in those decision-making spots and have a stakeholding position to affect change. And so it starts with leaders like yourself and men for change. And so, you know, thank you for that. And you also gave a lot of good points on how other people in different organizations can also bring up topics and say, hey, we think she would be good for this role or just advocating for people who don't have voice like a lot of times. And like you mentioned, not just women, but just diverse candidates. It does start young. It starts in high school and women in STEM still now in 2023. It's gone a lot better, but we can all play a part in that and just inspiring the younger females going into those careers so that we do have a pool later on to pick from. So thank you. We wanted to ask you a question that we really like asking a lot of the leaders who've had a lot of experience like yourself is in 42 plus years, what can you think of maybe one of the biggest lessons that you've learned in your corporate career from overcoming fear of failure or maybe a difficult situation that you didn't think you could overcome? And then now that you're on the other side, maybe something that you can share with us that maybe will help us in our careers if we're going to face something similar. Yeah, well... Man, there's a thousand things, right? So (laughs) where to start? Well, I think maybe the first one is it's okay to admit you don't know. And it's okay to admit to others you don't know. And first, you have to start with yourself. And then you have to probably be very public about that. What that drives, it doesn't drive the fact that you don't know, doesn't stop you from driving to find a solution and an answer that does work. And I would say that it's amazing what people will share with you if you just ask them. And if you do it humbly, right? And, you know, I'd spend a lot of time benchmarking. I call it benchmarking. I'm not sure what other people call it, but I'll pick up the phone. I mean, we just come out of a COVID situation. We're trying to understand how we're going to run our business, what others are doing. How does this work? I picked up the phone and I had an opportunity. I know a guy from Johnson Johnson who was on our board. We had an opportunity to dial in and talk to Johnson Johnson directly about COVID-19 and learn from them from a medical company that understood what was actually going on, as well as talk to some professional doctors. And then I started benchmarking across the industry, right? And suddenly we started getting clarity about, gosh, here's how we can manage our business. Here's how we're going to work offshore. Here's how we're going to work onshore. Here's how we manage our engineering teams. How's, here's how we work on MS Team and Zoom, right? Mm-hmm. These were things we hadn't quite got across that bridge yet. That's one area. I think, too, I'll just say it. My biggest learnings in my career have come from probably some of the darkest times in my career, some of the most controversial or most difficult times, right? And early in my career, I was involved. I wasn't directly involved on the rig at the time, but I was called in to help on a blowout down in Sheep Mountain, down in Southern Colorado. And what was unique about that blowout is 100% CO2 well, CO2 is going to be piped down to West Texas. Anyway, I won't get into, I can get in deep technical detail. I will not do that, I promise. But long story short, they had shut the well in, they had a blowout, and it blew out the side of the mountain. This wasn't a conventional blowout. This was a very unusual situation. As we looked at it, we had a couple of wild well control consultants come in, not wild well control company, but different well control companies involved. One of our guys said, you know, I said, I know a guy named Elmo Blount with Mobile. And he said, you know, they just killed a well that had a similar situation going over in a ruin in Indonesia. He says, I'm going to call him. And we called him and he described to us this technique called a dynamic kill. 
is actually what we use, but it was from that call and then understanding, I mean, it's pretty basic reservoir principles around dynamic kill and how you overcome mass flow and so on and so forth. But once we understood that, it was the solution that solved that problem, right? It was that connection and that collaboration that made that possible. Up to that point, it was not a good thing, right? And it was very difficult and people weren't happy and I get all that stuff, but we were able to work that solution. Another case in point, I got involved post-Katrina and Reed in the cleanup of a bunch of down platforms out in Grand Island, West Delta for BP. And, you know, that's something we'd never done before. And honestly, when we went out and flew those things the first time, we couldn't really see much because it was so murky and muddy out there. It's in shallow water and you're right there in the mouth of the Mississippi. But we started learning how to image and get the images and understand what was going on. The more we understood, the more complex we knew it was. That became a networking and a benchmarking and a collaborating effort about how do you clean something like that up, which was a remarkable thing. But I mean, there was many difficult hours getting that point. We had one well that was leaking. We had to come up with a sombrero and a sump pile and all this stuff to collect the oil, you know, but it was difficult. It was hard, but it was actually, from an engineering standpoint, fascinating, and it was fun to be involved in that. And maybe my last one, I'll say, and I won't get into a lot of detail on this one, but I was very involved in Macondo. I led source control for the Macondo, the Deepwater Horizon instance, which was the worst spill in the Gulf of Mexico history. I won't get into all the details, but that was one of those things. I never want to see that happen again, but I'd be the first to volunteer to get involved in that. Because it's solving problems that we hadn't seen before. We had many of the tools. We understood many techniques. We knew we had to launch many projects because every project has a different timeline on it. It takes a while to create and bake the things that you need to do these things. So it was very difficult. And of course, the weight of the world, it was a spill of national significance. Admiral Thad Allen was a unified commander. There was all this protocol and all these things that we had to do. But it also took you back to some very basic principles of how do we control the source at the closest point of that possible, despite all the issues, you know, 11 people had lost their lives. There was millions of people affected the Gulf Coast. It was a tragic situation, but you had to find a solution at the same time. So it's kind of digging in and relying on each other and having the resolve actually solve a problem like that and do it in a timely and an appropriate fashion. So no one else is harmed or you put into any other people in harm's way. So kind of three different examples of maybe some big fails in my career that I've been involved in. But, you know, looking back on it, it has shaped me as a person. It actually has humbled me greatly being involved in those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And maybe last but not least, it's taught me to rely on other people. You know, I can't do it on my own. That's the magic of teams and magic of working with diverse groups of people. So. Richard, thank you for taking us back to those times. We understand that had to have been very difficult moments in your career, but they turned out to be some of the best learnings that you had ever been a part of. And now you're here knowledgeable about those experiences and you can share with the rest of the world. We really appreciate you opening up to that. And that really takes us to our closing question. You know, you talked about how the oil and gas industry solves big problems, and we really do. The next generation is very interested in this whole energy transition topic. I was just at Rice University and all the grad students were talking about, you know, what skills do I need for the energy transition? And what that really got me to thinking was there's no skills different than what we need for oil and gas. And at the end of the day, we also don't want to forget that we can be the cleanest possible still producing oil and gas. It's not just 
the energy transition that's going to be the future. What have you seen in your 42 plus years as far as recruitment and getting the attention of the graduate students to come into our industry? How have you seen that evolve? And what are you doing today to make sure that we continue to bring in the best talent for these big problems that we have to solve? Yeah, another great question. I mean, you guys answer these really broad questions. I'll try to narrow it down and answer the core of that. So number one, I can't imagine a more exciting time to not be in the oil and gas business than right now. And this is forward-looking. Oil and gas is a noble energy source. The issue we've got is around emissions. It's not about the energy. It's an emissions issue. And that's actually a technical problem. That technical problem I know can be solved. I don't know the answer right now. If I did, I'd be rich and probably living on a yacht somewhere. But you know what I'm saying? Emissions is a technical issue that can be resolved and sorted out. And I actually think oil and gas as a form of energy will be around for many, many, many decades to come. So that's one message. I do think people getting involved in understanding the emissions problem is going to be very important. I also think other forms of energy are important. The alternative energy sources are vital, whether it's nuclear, whether it's wind or solar, whether it's fission, a different type of nuclear energy, mm-hmm. or whatever else, the harnessing the tides, all that kind of thing. Dams and hydropower are still vitally important, right? That energy engineering to me is a fascinating new world. And I think whether you want to concentrate on oil and gas, or if you take a broader paintbrush and pick a broader spectrum about energy, Energy provides heat, light, mobility, and health of the world around us. It's noble. And I think it's a great thing to be involved in. And as an engineer, not only make it better for ourselves, but leave this world in a better place than we found it, right? One of the great things about being an engineer and being involved in these types of businesses, you can make a difference. I love that. I have passion for that. I wish I was graduating now. (laughs) <laughs> I only wish I was graduating now. You know, I probably don't have another 42 years left. I don't know. I'm going to give it a go. But I, you know what I'm saying? When you look back at it, it's like, man, what an opportunity. And I get it's a big problem. The big problems need big solutions and you need to be part of it. That's what I appreciate about you guys doing this flipping the barrel conversation. A lot of different things get in the way of these conversations. And I'm not going to discredit any of that. I understand most of it and some of it I don't, but it's focusing back on the basics and what makes this world work and why people work well together and why people have the needs that they do. At the end of the day, that's what engineers do. We help people solve their problems. You know, there's been many different ways to do that. So I probably waxed and waned too much on that subject for you, but it's one that touches my heart and my mind both. And I really like that question. So thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. That was perfectly said and very inspiring to leave us with. To your point, this is such an exciting time to be graduating right now. And we're going to continue to shine a positive light on the industry because like yourself, we're very passionate about it. And we know how important it is for the world. We're here to attract as much young talent as possible. And thank you so much for, you know, exactly how you close it is what people need to hear. We really appreciate it. 42 plus years and you're still excited to do another 42. So that's just on its own. Let, you know, the younger generation know what an exciting career that they can have as well. And so thank you so much for sharing with us today. We've learned so much and we really appreciate the time that you took today. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, guys. Look forward to working with you some more.
Thank you. And if you like this episode, please like, subscribe, leave a comment. You can find us on YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn. We're starting TikTok. So we're pretty much everywhere. So we look forward to hearing from you all. Thank you all. Tune in next time. 